like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. And I want you to think right now about some of the most unbelievable claims that you've ever heard someone make. Things that seem so bizarre and so out there that they can't possibly be true. That you have to have some type of confirmation before you will actually believe this incredibly strange claim that someone is making. Maybe you've heard someone claim, you know, if I can just get you to invest $10,000 in this business idea I have, then I guarantee you that by the end of the month, you'll make 10 times what you invest. Maybe you've gotten an email from a Nigerian prince and the prince says, you know, my finances from my family, they're tied up. If you send me some money, then I can get my money and I will return more to you than you gave to me. And whenever I see that email, whenever I get that claim, I always think, OK, at least send me a picture of your crown if I'm going to send some money. I mean, come on, give me something to go off of here, because that is a pretty crazy claim. Maybe you've seen commercials for weight loss pills that claim, you know, take this pill, don't change your diet, don't exercise, it's 100% healthy for you, and you'll lose five pounds a week for eight weeks, guaranteed. No problem at all. And then you see before and after pictures because they know, okay, this is a pretty bold claim to make. Maybe we should try to convince them that this really is the case, that this really does work. Maybe you've heard claims about people being abducted by aliens or that Elvis is still alive. Claims that seem completely bizarre and crazy and you would not possibly believe them. You can't just take them at face value. Well, the point is this. Unless you are a very naive person, you don't just trust that anything that people tell you. You have to have some kind of proof, especially when the claims seem completely off the wall. You need confirmation before you separate yourself from that money. You need confirmation before you buy that weight loss pill. You need confirmation before you believe that urban legend. As we pick up in our Come to the Table series this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we see a lot of bold claims about who Jesus is. The type of claims that seem completely out of this world. The type of claims that people have to have confirmation of if they're really going to believe them. But what confirmation would Jesus offer? What confirmation does John offer in his gospel to show that these bold claims that he makes about Jesus, these bold claims that others make about Jesus, really are true? How can we believe these bold claims? With that, open up to John chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. That's our main passage this morning. If you're using one of our Bibles, that'll be located on page 759. If you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. And before we dig into our passage, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, your word has a lot of big things to say about Jesus. And God, many of us here may have read these claims and we believe these claims but there might be people here who are a little skeptical that aren't quite sure yet if all these claims can really be true if all of this crazy stuff in this book of yours is really accurate god i pray that as we examine the bold claims that john and others make about jesus that we can examine those claims for ourselves 
that we can wrestle with those claims for ourselves if we don't believe them yet. And I pray for those of us who do believe them already, that we can find confidence and more encouragement that we're not crazy for believing that you really did send your son to die for us. God, we love you. We praise you. Give us clear hearts and clear minds as we read your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last two weeks have been leading up to this sermon. The last two weeks, we've been looking at Old Testament passages that kind of give us a glimpse of Jesus, but we haven't actually directly talked about Jesus in Scripture yet. In the first week, we talked about Genesis 3.15, how Jesus would be the answer to man's separation from God, that God was sending an offspring of Eve who would bruise Satan's head, even though Satan would bruise his heel too. And that this offspring of Eve, this one that God would send, he would break that separation that sin brings into the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed. In week two, we looked at Exodus chapter 12, how Jesus is our Passover lamb, how God delivers the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And even though he doesn't deliver us from slavery in Egypt, he delivers us from something much greater than slavery in Egypt. And that is the dominion of darkness is what Paul calls it in Colossians. He delivers us from slavery to sin, which is so much greater than slavery in Egypt. And because of this deliverance, because of the deliverer that God has sent, being Jesus, we can be reunited with God because he took the wrath that we deserve. He took the punishment that we rightfully earn. And yet he was perfect. He never sinned. He didn't deserve any punishment at all. And yet he takes it for us because he is our deliverer. Now, that brings us to the Gospel of John, where we actually talk about Jesus. And the Gospel of John starts off with some really, really bold claims about who Jesus is. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, John, the author of this book, says things about Jesus like he is from the beginning. That Jesus has always existed. There's never been a time where Jesus wasn't. Jesus is completely separate from time. He is sovereign over time. He's always been there. He just is. John says that Jesus, the word was God, calling Jesus the word and saying that Jesus is God. Giving him that divine status, putting him on the same level as God himself. John says that all things were made through him, that Jesus was present at creation, that Jesus had a hand in creation, again, hitting that at that eternal nature of Jesus. John says that Jesus gives people the right to become children of God. That's a pretty big claim of authority for Jesus to have. John says that Jesus has glory as the only son from the father. Again, a bold claim about authority, a bold claim about Jesus's power. He says that Jesus is greater than Moses, the Israelite hero that everyone looked up to. Jesus is better than him. He's greater than him. John makes some pretty bold claims as he writes this opening chapter. And then we see John the Baptist in verses 29 through 34. John the Baptist says things about Jesus like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about that last week. Bold claim to make. This guy takes away the sin of the world? Really? Is he really that powerful? 
John the Baptist says that this Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that even mean? Either way, it sounds like a pretty big claim. And then John the Baptist doesn't mince words when he directly says, this is the Son of God. Bold claim to make. In John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, Andrew tells his brother Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah was not just a word that you threw around back then. You didn't just call anybody the Messiah. This was someone that everyone was looking forward to, that the Jewish people were placing all of their hope in. You don't throw that term around, but... Andrew claims that this guy really is the Messiah. And then at the end of chapter one, Philip tells his brother Nathaniel that Jesus is the one the whole Old Testament has been writing about. But here's the thing. Nathaniel doesn't quite buy it right away. Kind of makes you wonder if maybe Nathaniel had fallen prey to some Nigerian princes or weight loss pills in the past because he's a little skeptical about a bold claim like this. Look at John chapter 1, verse 46. As Philip makes this claim, we see Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So not only is Philip a little bit skeptical, a little bit cautious. He's even cynical. Really? If you're going to make a bold claim like that, that the Messiah has come, at least come up with a better place than Nazareth, some podunk town like that. Don't tell me this guy's from Nazareth. At least make this claim believable, Philip. Come on. Well, then we see the exchange go on. We see in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So he's skeptical. So he's cynical. But then Nathanael gets confirmation that Jesus is not just some huckster, he's not just some scam artist. Jesus has this incredible way of knowing things that no one else could have known. Jesus was quite a distance away, but Jesus seems to know where Nathaniel was and what he was doing. And Nathaniel is just blown away by it. And so when Nathaniel gets that confirmation, his response is, okay, I'm in. I get it. This guy really is the Messiah. He's the king of Israel. He is the son of God. Let me know what I need to do. And he does just that. But then look at John chapter 1, verse 50. As Jesus responds to this person who was so skeptical about who he really was, we see Jesus say, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus tells Nathanael, You think that's impressive, Nathanael? That I can tell you where you were sitting from kind of a long way away? Well, just wait. You're going to see something even better than that. In fact, you're going to see a lot of things greater and bigger and that display my power so much better than just that. So you just wait. You think you've gotten confirmation now. Trust me. Confirmation is coming. So look at John chapter two, verse one. We get to the main passage. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus and his disciples, they're invited to a wedding. That's nice. Mary's there too. Jesus's mom. This is a big deal. I mean, weddings were a big celebration back then. Often an entire town would celebrate a wedding. The newlyweds would be treated like royalty. They would have crowns. There would be a procession through the streets of the town. There would be eating. There would be drinking. There would be dancing. All kinds of great big celebrations the whole nine yards. But here's the thing. There are a couple families in our churches or in this church this morning that are getting ready to throw weddings or getting ready to attend weddings or getting ready to pay for weddings. Take heart because these weddings would often last up to a week long. So look on the bright side. You're paying for one day. These were a week. So don't worry about it. You'll be okay. But either way, it was a huge celebration to throw a wedding. And things are going well. Everybody's happy. Everyone's rejoicing. Everybody's having a great time. But then Mary points out a problem. Jesus, the wine, is running out. And they're going to be out really, really soon. And this is a week-long celebration. That's a big deal. Now, it might not seem like the end of the world to us, but back then, running out of wine at your wedding was a massive embarrassment. Just a huge catastrophe. It was the ultimate New Testament party foul. Don't run out of wine. Above everything else, don't lose the wine. If you did that, your reputation would be tarnished. You would be a laughingstock in your community for running out of wine at the wedding. And Mary, being caring and being compassionate, she points it out to Jesus and seems to expect that Jesus will do something about it. That Jesus can help in some way. But then you see Jesus' response. He doesn't really sound like he's in too helpful of a mood, does he? He essentially says, look, Mary, they'll be okay. This isn't the end of the world for them. And really, it's not my concern. It's not my problem. Why should I give them more wine? In fact, you see that he calls Mary woman. Now, you might be thinking, if... You're like me. If I called my mother woman, I'd probably get smacked in the face, even at this age. But believe it or not, in that day and age, this wasn't really considered disrespectful. It's not like Jesus is insulting Mary when he calls her woman. He's not throwing her under the bus. He's not being rude. He's just using a title that most people didn't use for their parents. That was kind of out of the ordinary for a son to call his mom woman. More than anything... What that shows is that Jesus's main concern is obeying God the Father. As we talked in our Ten Commandments series about that potential situation of what if your parent tells you to do something that you do not believe lines up with the will of God? What do you do? Because you're supposed to honor your parents, but you're also supposed to honor and obey God above all else. And Mary's not telling Jesus to do anything that flies in the face of God's commands, but he is reminding her that Mary woman, I go by God's timing and my hour has not yet come. Now, we don't really know what happens between verse four and verse five. 
Does Jesus pray and ask God, God, do you want me to do this miracle? Does Mary just keep coercing him a little bit and finally Jesus just gives in? We don't know. But either way, Jesus agrees to help out with the wine. He agrees to help this family from complete social embarrassment. Look at verses 6 through 8. We pick up there. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Well, Jesus is acting. He's going to take some steps now to address this problem. He orders the servants to take these massive water jars, a lot of water. All this put together would have been up to 180 gallons of water, and it would have taken a long time to fill jars that big in that day and age. Jesus tells the servants, take these massive jars, fill them up and take them to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast may have been the one who would be sweating the most if wine was running out. He may have been the one who's really nervous. So they take him the water jars. Look at verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So somehow Jesus turns 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine. And it's not just basic wine. It's incredible wine. The master of the feast is absolutely blown away when he tastes this wine. He's amazed that wine that tastes this good would still be around this late in a wedding celebration. Normally what you would do is you would serve the good stuff first while people still had enough awareness to be taste testers. And then later in the celebration, when the awareness went down a little bit, then you could serve the cheap stuff, the stuff that isn't quite as good. And the master of the feast is blown away that they saved the best for last. That wine this good can still be around this late in the wedding. And the master of the feast gives the bridegroom all the credit. The servants, they know what's happened. They know that they didn't provide the wine. They know that this wine wasn't here before. They know that Jesus did something to it. And somehow this ended up being wine. But the master of the feast doesn't know that. The bridegroom gets all the credit. He didn't have any idea where it came from either, but he is saved from social embarrassment. He is saved from this absolute catastrophe because of what Jesus does, because of the power that Jesus has to change all of that water into all of that beautiful, wonderful tasting wine. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's it. That's the end of the story. A lot of water turns into a lot of wine. A family isn't embarrassed. Yeah, pretty cool. But what's the big deal? Well, the master of the feast, the bridegroom and most of the guests don't even know what's happened. 
It's not like everyone is blown away by what Jesus just did. A lot of the people are clueless about what Jesus just did. But the disciples, they've been given confirmation that all those bold claims are true. That Jesus really is the Son of God. That Jesus really is the Messiah. That Jesus really does have this incredible power that no regular old rabbi or no regular old spiritual teacher had. And all of a sudden, they believe. They might have still been a little skeptical at first. They might have still been a little confused about what they were really getting themselves into. But then they see something like this. And they know that this Jesus guy is not like everyone else. He really does have power that we can't really explain. And the consistent confirmation throughout Jesus's ministry that he really is the son of God. The confirmation that John the Baptist wasn't crazy. The confirmation that Andrew wasn't just naive when he told Peter about Jesus. That Philip wasn't just falling for some scam when he went to Nathaniel. The confirmation that Nathaniel got the hard way are Jesus's miracles. Those show the power that Jesus has. Those show that Jesus really is the son of God. They put his power on display. As John puts it in verse 11, they manifest his glory. Throughout history, many people have referred to John chapter 2 for John chapter 2 to the rest of the book, basically, until near the very end, as the book of signs. That's what they call this big chunk of chapters, the book of signs, because these are all things that happen that manifest Jesus' glory. All miracles that occur that show that Jesus really is the Messiah, that these bold claims really are true. But with this miracle, turning the water into wine, this is not just about helping save a family from embarrassment. This isn't even just about showing that Jesus is powerful. There's something more happening here. In Scripture, as Joshua mentioned in his communion meditation, wine was often symbolic of something that God was doing. If you had plentiful wine, that was a sign of blessing, that God was blessing you because you had lots of wine. And if you didn't have wine, then you were probably under a curse. You probably did something wrong that made God really mad. In fact, your lack of wine may be symbolic of this pouring out of God's wrath on you. So wine is not just a drink that was used back then. There's more to it than that. Wine was often symbolic of hope. It was symbolic of something that would come in the future. That God really was doing something. That God really was restoring his people to relationship with him. Look at Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. We read there, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine while refined. Jump up to verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. 
We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Look at Amos chapter 9, verse 13, another passage talking about wine. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So in the Old Testament, you have these pictures of this change that is coming, of how one day God will truly make creation a wonderful place. That the effects of sin will be no more. That death won't have the final say. And with all of these promises, with all of these beautiful images that we read of this future hope, we see this idea of plentiful wine. It will be like wine is flowing everywhere. It'll be an incredible experience. And so it gives people hope for what comes next. Now, when Jesus told Nathanael, that he would see even greater things than just Jesus being able to tell Nathaniel that you were sitting under a fig tree a few minutes ago. You think that's great, Nathaniel? Well, just wait till you see what comes next. Jesus was talking more than about just cool miracles with greater things that would be coming. He wasn't just talking about how he would do some pretty cool tricks and do some nice things for some people who were in desperate situations. Jesus was talking about the fact that God was turning the world upside down through him. That a new day was coming. That a new age was dawning because he had come. An age where wine would flow, where death would be no more. That age was on its way. And that age is coming through Jesus himself. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 22. In this passage, we see Jesus being confronted with his disciples by some religious leaders who are really kind of upset that Jesus's disciples don't fast as much as some traditions would say that they would. And we see Jesus's response in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Again, something new has come. Back then, wine was kept in containers that were made of animal skin, and as wine would ferment, it would release CO2, and so the animal skin would expand. And Jesus' idea is that if you put new wine that hadn't fermented yet into wineskin that was already expanded to its limit, that was expanded to its capacity, that new wine, when it started expanding... The wineskins would burst. It would be ruined. The wine would be ruined. You don't do that. You can't fit this new thing into the old way of doing things. And Jesus is comparing himself to that new wine. Something new has come. And everything else, while it had its place in the past, the law, the sacrifices, all of those things, they are now being reoriented around Jesus. Everything is now revolving around him. And we're going to see that next week with communion, how Jesus would take Passover and do that with Passover. But something new had come. God was doing something. A new age was coming that the law couldn't bring, that animal sacrifices couldn't bring, that only Jesus could bring. And that's the promise of future hope. That's the promise of this new age. That's the promise of this time where wine would flow, 
where death would be no more, would, where joy would be everywhere, where tears would be wiped from faces. And all of these things, this future hope, it revolves around Jesus and Jesus alone. Look back at Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9. I'd like to read that verse one more time. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We can say, let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. We can say that we're no longer waiting for our salvation, that our salvation has already been confirmed because of what Jesus has done through the cross and through the resurrection, through the blood that was shed that we often symbolize with juice or with wine. We know that our salvation has arrived, that our salvation has come. We still deal with sin. We still deal with the effects of sin in our own lives. We still deal with the effects of sin around us. We still often fall short when we strive to run away from temptation. But we also find hope and we also have confidence that our salvation has appeared and it's appeared in Jesus. Now, that's a pretty bold claim to make. How can we make that bold claim? Why are we so sure of this? Well, we're so sure of this because Jesus's miracles confirm those claims. Jesus's power to perform these miracles, to turn all that water into all that wine, they confirm that all those claims were true, that he really is the son of God, that he really is the Messiah, and that we can make that bold claim that we have hope in eternity, not because of anything that we've done, but because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. Let us rejoice because we know our salvation is here. Jesus's power proves it. His miracles confirm it. And we have hope because of it. Let's pray. Father, we read stories like this, turning water into wine, stories that many people have heard about before. And it's a cool story. It's a pretty neat thing that Jesus does here, but it goes deeper than that. It's more than just helping a family out in a time of need. It's more than just helping avoid an awkward situation. You're telling us something, God, through Jesus as he does these things. You're showing us that all those bold claims are true, that we're not crazy for believing that Jesus really is the Son of God, that we're not crazy for believing that salvation has come through what Jesus has done. And God, we are grateful for that. We are people that so often need confirmation. We are people that so often look for signs because we have those doubts. We have those fears. We sometimes think that this stuff can't possibly be true. And God, a lot of times we don't get the signs that we ask for. But at the same time, we read your word and we see who you are. And we see those claims confirmed. God, I pray that we can place our trust in those claims, that we can have confidence because of what Jesus has done, not just 
when he was alive, walking this earth, but in his death and in his resurrection. So God, thank you for the signs that have occurred. Thank you that we can hold these claims with confidence. And I pray that we won't back down from making these bold claims to anyone who will hear us out. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps the boldest claim that someone can make about Jesus in the New Testament, we haven't even talked about this morning, and that's the claim that he's alive. People saw him die. People saw him suffer. People saw him put away in a tomb. And yet, for some reason, New Testament Christians went around and claimed that Jesus was alive. Well, I, too, make that claim to you this morning. And we as a church make that claim that Jesus is alive and that nothing confirms his power more and his identity more than his death and resurrection. So I pray this morning, if you have not bought into those claims of Jesus being the son of God, that you would consider those claims, that you would look to God's word. You would ask questions. You would wrestle with those claims that you would talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'll be happy to pray with you, happy to tell them, tell you how they believe that Jesus really is alive, how they claim to believe these claims. So talk to one of those guys if you haven't yet believed these claims, if you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They'd be happy to answer your questions, happy to pray with you. Take advantage of that as we sing one more song.